Is this the new industrial revolution where kind of digitizing every industry is like laying railroads across America and are we in the middle innings? Or is this crazy behavior like 1999 and this thing's going to blow up? And I think on our team, we have disparate points of view around which of those points of view is right. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. Later on, we will discuss new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy's comments on television this week. But first, let's talk about the Seattle startup market and news of a major Seattle IPO. Our guest commentator this week is Jason Stouffer, a partner at venture capital firm Mavron and the author of the new blog, Ringing the Bell, where he analyzes consumer IPOs. Jason, it's great to have you here. It's great to be back, guys. Uh, it's a pleasure. Jason, you have been writing this blog, Ringing the Bell, just for a short amount of time, but it's really a compilation of some of the S1 teardowns that you've been doing. And for people who are not familiar with the art of the IPO or the registration process, this is when companies really reveal what is actually going on behind the scenes before public investors start jumping in and putting their money in. And there was a company named Remitly that you had a chance to invest in back in 2012. You call this part of your anti-portfolio because you opted not to invest in them at the time. And you write on your blog that this company, the Seattle Money Remittance Company, proved you wrong. Tell us the story of Remitly from your perspective. Sure. Well, I, you know, in, in terms of the blog, it's ringing the bell at Substack. The reason for the blog is Mavron's an early stage consumer investor. We invest um, either pre-launch or just after launch in businesses we think can build iconic consumer brands. And the interesting thing, which I like to ask a founder, is talk to me 10 years from now, if your vision comes to uh, its full potential, what will your company look like? What are the competitive barriers going to look like? What are the differentiators? What's the business model? Uh, what's the earnings power? And essentially, what I'm asking them to do is outline what their S1, their public filing is going to look like a decade out when we're meeting them when it's essentially two women or men in a room who are starting a company with an idea. So the rationale for me in terms of writing this blog was to, uh, I mean, one, stay abreast of kind of what are the themes of the companies that are going public and just hone my own thinking as an early stage investor on what it takes uh, to get out into the market and strength. So the Remitly story is an interesting one. I was a young VC. I had joined Mavron. Uh, only a few years prior. And Remitly was one of the first companies in the Techstars class. I think it was the first Techstars cohort with uh, Andy Sack and Chris DeVore. So I went to the Chris uh, Techstars office, as I often do, and uh, met all of the Techstar companies. And these guys really stood out. It was Matt and Josh. Uh, Matt was a banker at Barclays. Josh was a product, uh, was a really great product person who had done Shelfari. And their insight was that Western Union's broken. I mean, you need, I mean, historically back then you needed to go to a Western Union if you're a, I mean, the use case is typically you're an immigrant to the U.S. Um, you're sending money back to your family in whatever country you came from. 
You go stand in line at a, at a Western Union office. Uh, customer service is terrible. You pay exorbitant fees and they send the money to your family. It takes a few days and then they go pick it up from an, with an equally terrible customer you know, experience on the receive end. So Matt and Josh had the insight of we're going to disrupt Western Union, which is a pitch we had heard many times before. And uh, their whole premise was, one, you're going to have it um, be very fast. It's going to be a digital experience, so you won't need to wait in line everywhere, anywhere. Um, if you have a bank account, we could transfer the money to your bank account. If you don't, we'll have cash pickup locations and set up a network in the receive country. So the premise here was these guys could get regulatory approval in like 48 or 49 states. They could figure out uh, how to market to customers in the Philippines at the time. And they can compete against a behemoth, which was generating, you know, north of a billion in operating profit a year. And it felt like the end vision was powerful if they can get there. But, you know, two guys in a room in Seattle saying they were going to navigate an incredibly complex regulatory environment and uh, and figure out how to market in a country, you know, a continent away. It felt like too, ha- uh, too big a hill to climb and they proved me wrong. So, Jason, I love digging into S1 filings as well. Uh, it's this first time you get any sort of insight into startup companies is, uh, that we've been covering for many years. And we should note, uh, just as a, as a side, side note here, the Techstars class you mentioned, it was a Techstars Seattle class, and it was 2011, so 10 years ago. And it has had more unicorns than I think any other Techstars class anywhere. Uh, not only Remitly, but another Seattle company, Outreach, came out of there. And I think there's even a third and maybe a fourth that have come out of that class. So an amazing class of 10 companies to have that hit rate. Totally. Uh, so you could have just invested in the entire Techstars uh, portfolio <laughs> and you guys would have been doing really, really well uh, in 2011. I wasn't as smart as uh, Chris and Andy were. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> But when you look at it, I, I'm curious from a venture capitalist perspective, when you're analyzing and looking at a company like Remitly, and you mentioned the regulatory environment was hard because they had to get licenses in each of these uh, states. And then the marketing challenge was was hard because they had to market in places like the Philippines. That's not an easy task. So what is it as a VC that usually stands out that's the difference between yes or no? Because some venture capitalists did say yes and got over that hump. It's always easy to say in hindsight, if I saw it today, I'd do it. But I think as I've matured as a VC, I think, I mean, the key to venture capital is you invest in, I mean, from a Mavron standpoint, we invest in 15 to 18 companies of fund and one or two need to achieve their full potential to return kind of the multiples on our capital that we're looking to return. So you need to essentially, um, as a VC, you need to be the ultimate optimist. You need to look at what's possible. Then you need to look at kind of what bets are you making, and you know, are you willing to uh, are you willing to believe there's a ten or fifteen percent chance that this big vision could come true? And here, um, it was pretty clear you had two very strong founders with uh, with a vision of a company that was going to happen. It was inevitable that digital would disrupt Western Union. In retrospect, that's a bet you should make. Um, I just didn't at the time have the gumption to do it as a kind of young budding VC. So the news this week is that Remitly set the terms for its IPO. They're expecting to raise 
$284.6 million or up to $332.6 million. And they will be valued at around $6.5 billion at the midpoint of their pricing range. Before I ask Jason about this, John, I want to ask you, because you had some interesting comments and perspectives on this when we were discussing it in Slack inside GeekWire this week. Can you put this in context in terms of the Seattle IPOs that we've been seeing? Where does this rank and and what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's big, I would say. It's, you know, it's a, a, a... It's a large ra- uh, large raise, especially for a company that's in the mobile or software space. I think Sana Biotechnology IPO'd and they raised five hundred and eighty seven million. So that you know, a bigger um, raise by Sana, but that's in the biotech arena and takes a lot longer to build up drugs. I mean, Sana's probably not gonna have a product on the market for many, many years. Remitly, this is the difference between biotech and and life sciences and a company like Remitly in the fintech space or software space. I mean, Remitly's got, what do they have? They have 202 million in revenue and a net loss of 9 million. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a good chunk of revenue. And the nice thing about these fintech companies is that when they do get profitable, my guess is, and I want to ask Jason this, my guess is this can be an extremely profitable business because they don't have the physical infrastructure to deal with and all they're doing is taking a slice off each track transaction and once the once a customer uses it once i'm guessing the repeat usage on this is relatively high and so uh and then the amount of money and the number of people they start sending it to is probably even higher so it seems like it's a very very strong business even though they still are losing money but not as much as i expected and not as much as you see from other companies that are sometimes going public i think you know i think in the world of of this is essentially a subscription business right because once you sign up and you start sending money you never stop i forget the frequency mentioned in the uh, in the um, in the filing but it's significant so you have a customer for life so you're willing to spend and have a payback of in many cases, two, three, four years, if you know you're going to have them for a decade or more. So, um, you know, I think the the thing that was striking to me is Western Union does $5 billion in revenue and about a billion in operating profit, right? Um, it's been shrinking a little bit each year. It's valued at $8.7 billion. My gut is remotely trades up within six or nine months. It's, you know, exceeding Western Union in terms of valuation just based on kind of transfer wise, which is the kind of European equivalent of Remitly, which is slightly bigger, but growing a lot slower and valued at 10 or 11 billion. So uh, this is clearly a business where there's going to be, I mean, you're spending, what was it? 35% of revenue on marketing or something of that ilk, but you're acquiring customers over decades. And it's a little bit of a land grab, like who's going to be the first digital solution to grab customers. And it's a corridor by corridor battle. And what I mean by corridor is every different uh, country is uh, has its own dynamics and there's network effects. So if you start acquiring, for example, people from Vietnam or Guatemala or certain regions or cities, you can reach certain tipping points there where you become essentially the, the de facto solution of choice for kind of that community over long periods of time. So, I mean, what does that point to? It points to, you know, uh, poor resources against acquiring as many uh as many immigrant communities in as many countries as possible. Um, so you could have them for decades in the same way that Western Union like own this market for, you know, what, over a hundred years. Right. And you are seeing remitly 
do a pretty heavy marketing spend, very targeted marketing spend. For example, they just inked a deal with LAFC, the soccer club in Los Angeles, where there's obviously a, a huge uh, Latinx population. And so being, I mean, that's not, probably not a cheap sponsorship, but it's the direct market that they want to hit. So you do see them doing deals like that. Jason, you also mentioned Remitly eventually perhaps surpassing Western Union in market value. I mean, we've already seen this with one of Remitly's competitors, a company called Wise. It's formerly TransferWise. They went public via direct listing, and they're valued at about $11 billion already. So there, there, I think you're right. It's a land grab here. And there's there are a lot of, I guess the one risk, and maybe I'd like to get you to comment on this, is that what's the guarantee that Remitly is going to be that new digital uh, solution when there are up and coming companies that might, you know, disrupt Remitly versus just taking share from Western Union? I mean, I think you'll hear from corners of the crypto community, for example, that we can do this, you know, for transaction costs that are much lower. That's a long time from now. Um, I, I think, you know, um, I think once you have a customer, unless you disappoint them, you're going to keep them. Um, I think secondly, I think the thing that's even more interesting here is what's kind of the 20 or 30 X from here? How could this be a hundred billion dollar company? I think that's the interesting, you know, I, I once talked to a public company person who said, you know, your job is to figure out, does it scale from zero to a billion? And my job is to figure out, does it scale 10 X from the time it goes public? So if I were asking that question, I think, you know, the interesting thing is one is kind of core market. There's still a lot of corridors and customers to grab, but if you are digitally have a relationship with a consumer and digital banking is ascendant in many of these countries, what other kind of financial services can you offer a customer who already trusts you? So I think, you know, a lot of this is the bound on the upside here isn't market size of, uh, of the remittances market. The bound on the upside is, you know, do you have the ability as a company and team to sell additional financial services into communities where you already have a foothold. Coming up, the first thing Mavron's Jason Stouffer looks for when he starts reading an S1 statement. You're listening to GeekWire. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. So Jason, I've got to just switching gears here for a bit. Uh, since you're going to be diving into S1s and looking at, at these these IPO filings coming out, is there a private company that you would just love, you're like salivating for them to file, to go public so you can dig into uh, their S1 documents and see what's going on? I mean, there's a lot, right? I mean, there's the obvious ones, like a Stripe, like everyone would love to see what that looks like. Uh, I think there's others where, you, you know, what you want to understand is like, uh, does the sheep have no clothes? Like, is it a great right. company or is it is it a house of cards? Because, I mean, you're, we're living in a world where I think there's like a new tiger. Uh, uh, the hedge fund tiger is making a new investment every day. It feels like there's a new unicorn minted every day. Right. We have we, we have over 800 unicorns or something. There can't yeah. be 800, you know, 10 to 
20 billion companies that emerge. I mean, so in other words, some of those unicorns are going to die. So right now, these companies, capital is so available in private markets, you end up raising two, three, four, five hundred million. And sometimes like when we uh, had its S1, it was kind of like the emperor has no clothes. And like it was just it was uh, it was a mess. Other times you look at an S1 like remotely and you're like, wow, that's a really great business. So I, you know, I kind of um, I think there's there's a number of businesses where that just released S1s, your Warby Parkers, your um on runnings that are interesting in the consumer world, but uh, I'm I'm just uh, I'm I'm going to be excited to see businesses like uh, like I think through an Instacart, right? Great consumer experience. Like, is it a good company? Uh, GoPuff, the same. Um, I think that world of on-demand services is going to be super interesting to kind of look through those uh, filings for those. Yeah, Todd, I've got one, but I want to ask you, Todd, the same question. Or if you can guess which one I think would be interesting from the Seattle tech ecosystem. I'd like to hear yours, Sean. All right. Well, I thought you would try to guess what mine is. It's another very fast growing, but it's not a consumer. Convoy. Company, so I don't. Yeah, Convoy. I think Convoy would be really, really interesting to look at. I've heard. I mean, they're just they've gotten very big, very fast. They've hired a lot of great talent recently. And I, I would love to dig into Convoy's S1. Uh, on-demand trucking, essentially Uber for freight is what Convoy does. Yeah. I mean, Glowforge is another, which has grown its employee base. It's a super interesting company. And, you know. Yeah. in the hardware space. You just never know, right? And yeah. And you don't really get to see a kind of a, a company that's doing hardware go out. Uh, so that would be interesting to look at as well. I mean, you saw Cricket. That was a, uh, it's a, it's a printer for like crafters who live in, you know, largely women in red states. Uh, it's worth seven or eight billion for this kind of printer of materials you buy at like Michael and Joanne Fabrics. It was like you looked at that S one, you're like, this is a uh, monstrous business and a total surprise. So I love when the surprise is on the upside because kind of putting that optimist hat back on, it's 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 so fun to see when a business is far exceeds all expectations. And I find that oftentimes the ones that do exceed expectations get significantly less buzz in the tech press, for example, than the ones that, uh, than the ones that are, you know, the supposed stars. So when you open an S1 filing for the first time, what's the first thing you look for? What's your control F and what's the keyword or (laughs) what do you do? I mean, look, there's different, I mean, Buffett always says I go to the audited financials. I find the audited financials to be boring. I like, I like, I'm an early stage VC. I want to see, I want to hear the narrative. So I look at the, I look at the letter from the founders Oh, really? I, I would assume, Jason, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would assume that you would, as a VC, what you would look at is the principal shareholders to see which VC <laughs> owns how much. I'm just, I'm, I'm much more driven by the story and the business than I am by what other VCs. I mean, I'm, I'm just not that personally uh, driven by kind of the economics of others. John, you know what mine is? I do control F net income. <laughs> <laughs> There's always the other thing I always look at is like, what is this adjusted EBITDA number? And like the gymnastics, these companies, like you're like, I'm like, I'm like, I look at operating income. I look at this adjusted EBITDA number. And then I just go to the statement of cash flows. And I'm like, is this generating cash or not? Like, like that's the ultimate arbiter of like, is it a good business or not? Yeah. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Basically, what kind of gymnastics are they going through to come up with a number that looks good to potential investors on the bottom line? Exactly. Jason, what's your view just on the current 
market. I mean, we have seen a lot of uh, public offerings. SPACs have occurred, a lot of M&A. I mean, I look at our GeekWire 200 list and we've had to remove so many. These are This is the list of the 200 fastest growing privately held companies in the Northwest. And we've had to remove so many of them because they've been acquired or gone public this year. What's your sense of the market right now? Is it overheating or is it uh, is this a decent market to continue investing in as a VC? I mean, I feel like uh, as an early stage VC, you just invest with discipline at a at a similar pace year over year is what we do. Um, I think people have been saying the market's overheated for the past five years, but if you just index the top quartile of private SaaS companies for the past five years, for example, or private consumer companies, uh, you would have, uh, you would have done incredibly well. So I think what people are seeing is like, there's an arbitrage opportunity where the top VCs are generating IRRs in the twenties, thirties, forties, and you're able to generate, you know, uh, I mean, T bills will, will keep you kind of get you a percent or two a year. Um, plus you're seeing inflation happening. I mean, I don't know, it's not reflected in the consumer price index, but I can say every board meeting I've been, input costs are up. And that's whether it's labor, whether it's materials. And I think people are looking at their personal portfolios and saying, do I really want it sitting in kind of US dollars or do I want to, you know, own real assets? And if I'm going to own assets, I might as well own assets which have growth potential. So I think what you're seeing is just this massive share shift towards private, newly public, you know, technology companies. Yeah, or you can just throw it into Ethereum or crypto. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think I think the debate we have internally is: is this the new industrial revolution where kind of digitizing every industry is like laying railroads across America, and are we in the middle innings, or is this crazy behavior like 1999? This thing's going to blow up. And I think on our team we have disparate points of view around which of those points of view is right. Where do you land? You're an optimist, so I'm guessing it's the railroads. Um, I'm probably, I, I kind of, I kind of look and say in 99, there was virtually no digital share shift at all. I look at like apparel. Um, and I mean, it's 37 and a half percent of apparel is sold online in the U S now, which is wild. And it's projected to go to 50%, not that long from now. So you start to think through like, are the legacy businesses like in apparel, it would be like H and Amazon. Are those going to be the ones that win? No, it's going to be all new players. So you see that happening across healthcare, across real estate, across education, across, you know, I mean, virtually any industry you can think of. So I, I can't help but be, you know, an optimist about technology. I think the biggest risks are macro risks and, you know, whether, I mean, there's going to be some macro extraneous events that occur. And I think given the politicization, politicalization of kind of the world we're in, I think those will probably be more, not less frequent kind of in the years ahead. Big picture, when you look at the Remitly story, what lessons can you draw for entrepreneurs and investors from your own experience, your decision on that company and what they did to build it? If someone says the prize is really big, but it's too hard, keep plugging. I mean, it's all about the people, right? Like, I think you need to, to create something that's worth six and a half billion at IPO or eight billion or wherever it trades up to requires a certain level of moxie, capability, grit. Um, and Matt and Josh had that. And I think, uh, I think maybe if I spent more time thinking about do they have the 
drive, capability, grit to do this and less time thinking about what are the business hurdles they'll need to overcome, I would have got to yes. All right. Coming up next, we will talk about Amazon CEO Andy Jassy's first television appearance this past week and some of the comments that he made. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook here on the GeekWire podcast. Our guest is Jason Stouffer from the venture capital firm Mavron. Jason, you're also an investor in a company called Cap Hill Brands, which is an aggregator of third-party Amazon sellers. So I'm really curious and interested to get your perspective on Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. He appeared on CNBC this week, and many of his comments on antitrust were things that we'd heard before. We don't have the ability to, to raise prices in any kind of unfettered way. In fact, if you look at what we normally do, we're constantly taking prices down because there's a lot of competition in these markets. So Again, it, it sometimes the rhetoric sounds good, but you got to look at what reality is. And at 1% of worldwide retail, it's, it's hard to argue that's a monopoly. I'd be interested in just getting your overall take on Amazon these days, where the company is headed, competitive threats, antitrust, and long-term valuation under the new CEO, Andy Jassy. I mean, I think sometimes companies get big because, it, because it's kind of what they're um, – their mission is to do is to kind of maximize shareholder value of the entity they're in. I'd argue the thing's probably worth more if you split off cloud and AWS from the retail business, because right now it's like this, you know, messy thing where it's like, you know, is this a retail company? Is it a, you know, is this a digital media business? Is this a incredible SaaS business? It's like, it's hard to wrap your hands around all of it. So, I mean, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, would, would, shareholders be better off if you split those things apart. Um, so I, I kind of look at Amazon as, you know, I look at back in the, you know, 20th, early part of the 20th century, all of these conglomerates like P&G, Unilever, they bought these small regional brands and then they sold into uh, companies which had national distribution. So I think, you know, what are you seeing with Capital Brands and some of these other companies that are rolling up Amazon third-party brands is... They are, you know, essentially buying the equivalent of like the local company that made cereal that P&G bought in 1920. And then they'll sell it on Amazon. They'll sell it on Walmart. They'll sell it through any other number of digital channels. So I think there's a, um, you know, I think folks say, how big can these get? And I'd say, well, look at the, uh, look at the market caps of Unilever, P&G, Kimberly Clark, Clorox, and uh, this is the next generation of kind of that group of companies emerging. Jason, thank you very much for joining us. We will link from the show notes to your blog uh, on Substack, which is ringingthebell.substack.com. And we'll link to your Twitter account as well, where you do some great threads on these S1s. So uh, I hope we can see some of these S1s that you're hoping to see. I think we're all looking forward to getting a look under the hood of some of these companies. Wonderful. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, John. Good seeing you, Jason. Thanks, Jason. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.